just after Christmas, I lost my wallet. Uh, it was a frustrating experience. For a couple of days, I looked everywhere for my wallet. Uh, Anita was away, so you know I struggled with not being so good looking. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, I turned the house upside down. I went over to Crown Road because we'd been there for one of our summer barbecues, so I looked there. I went back to the shop where I last used my wallet. I scoured the car park. I asked one of the staff whether it had been handed in. I looked and looked. I could not find it. And so I went through the slightly costly process of replacing all of my cards Bank cards, they were free, but driver's license, blue card, had to pay for both of them, Medicare, everything. I replaced the lot. In my thoroughness, I even replaced cards that weren't in my wallet to start with. Uh, a few weeks after I lost, uh, lost it, I saw a message from the shop. It had been found. Uh, in fact, it had been found the day I reported it lost. I just hadn't seen the notification on my devices. Uh, Picking up my wallet felt pretty good. Nothing had been taken. What was lost was found. I also felt a little bit vindicated. Where I thought I lost it, I actually had. So in a strange way, I'm not as absent-minded as it seemed. Uh, Jesus told a few really well-known stories about lost things being found. A lost coin, a lost sheep, uh, lost sons. They're fairly well-known parables or stories. You probably know them. What you may not know is that those stories resound with echoes of a prophetic message from more than 600 years prior to Jesus. Sometimes we think, I think lots of Christians think, when you get to the New Testament, that's when you get the God who is warm and kind, the God of love. But the God of the Old Testament, he's angry and prickly, But what we're going to see today as we hear from Zephaniah is that the same thing Jesus teaches us about God in those stories, we actually learn the same thing about God in the prophet Zephaniah. Now, as I've said already, Zephaniah is probably not part of the Bible we're familiar with. There's one verse in Zephaniah you sometimes see on coffee cups and Instagram posts, but other than that... It's part of the Bible you probably haven't read. Uh, You may not have known it even existed before today. You probably thought Zephaniah and Zechariah were the same bloke, just one with a lisp and the other one not. No, they're different parts of the Bible. We're going to start Zechariah in a couple of weeks' time, actually. All right, so Zephaniah, 600 years before Jesus. Uh, He's a prophet who spoke to God's people, Judah. So we need a really quick overview of the history of God's people to situate uh, where Zephaniah fits in. So uh, here we've got some timelines up on the screen. So we've got David. David's the shepherd boy who killed Goliath and wrote many Psalms. David was king of Israel around a thousand years before Jesus. His son Solomon became king after him. After Solomon died, things go downhill really fast. Uh, There's a civil war. The nation was split in two. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. Uh, In 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by Assyria. It became part of the Assyrian Empire and that was the end of them. All of that happened before Zephaniah was born. 
Zephaniah was born a generation or two after Israel, the northern kingdom, was wiped out. He was probably born when Manasseh was king of Judah. Uh, From God's perspective, Manasseh is the worst king of Judah. Manasseh was evil, he worshipped idols, he was violent, and the people of Judah got on board with his program. Uh, Manasseh's son Ammon was king after him. The only good thing about Ammon, well, he was only king for two years. Uh, After Ammon, Josiah becomes king. He's only eight years old when he takes the throne. And compared to Manasseh, Actually, compared to any of the kings of Judah, he stands out. Uh, This is how Josiah's reign is summarized. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. So this is the time of Zephaniah. So have a look, Zephaniah, how does it start? Zephaniah one one. Zephaniah 1.1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Don't worry about all those names. This is the one to pay our attention to. During the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So that's the story so far. Uh, The context for what the Lord God says through Zephaniah. Now Zephaniah's message is heavy. Uh, We're only going to look at the highlights, maybe they're the lowlights. It's very heavy, pretty much unrelenting for two chapters. Zephaniah's message, God is coming. God is coming in sweeping judgment. So have a look at verse 2. So this is Zephaniah 1-2. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away both man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. Sweeping judgment. This isn't Mari Kondo tidying up. Uh, The picture isn't that God takes each item out of his closet and holds it close and sees whether it sparks joy. No, he's opening all the doors, all the windows, getting out. No, it's not an industrial broom. He gets out the industrial leaf blower and blows everything away. We laugh at the image, but it's this is terrible. This is serious judgment. Nothing is left. And so the question is, what was their sin? What, what evil, what sin has happened to deserve this extreme response? Well, through Zephaniah, God tells us, he tells us in two parts. First, we're told the sin of God's people. And second, the sin of the whole world. So what has God's people, what's Judah done to deserve being swept away? Well, they've been worshipping pretend gods, worshipping idols. In verse 4 it says they've been worshipping Baal. In verse 5, bowing down to the stars and planets. Now you might think that sounds pretty stupid to treat the stars, balls of gas up in the sky as if they are gods, But people still read astrology charts today. If you jump down to verses 8 and 9, God says he'll punish the kings and the political rulers for wearing foreign clothes. This is not about fashion. The foreign clothes are special clothes, religious clothes worn when you worship pretend gods. 
And so God's chosen people are worshipping pretend gods and this leads them, verse 12, to be complacent toward the true and living God. So have a look at verse 12, Zephaniah 1.12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think, oh, the Lord will not do nothing, either good or bad. All right, let's press pause for a moment. What's so bad about this? What's so bad about worshipping pretend gods? What's so bad about complacency toward the true and living God? Now, kids, I want you to think about this. What's so bad about worshipping pretend gods? Well, God's people are like a child who has loving parents, parents who provide for their child everything they need, a safe home, yummy food on the table, Love, lots and lots of hugs. God is like a loving parent to his to his people. Worshipping pretend gods, that's like telling your loving parents, I don't care what you've done for me. I reckon I'll go next door and have them as my parents. You wouldn't do that to your parents. Not if your parents are good, loving parents. Worshipping pretend gods is, is like that. It's offensive. It's it's disrespectful, it's, it's, it's ungrateful, but it, it's more, isn't it? It's worse than just treating your parents like that. So that's worshipping pretend gods. Then in verses 13 and 18, verses 13 and 18, God condemns his people for their love of money, for their greed, their love, their trust in, their reliance on their wealth. So have a look at verse 18. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Neither silver nor gold will save. We need to hear this warning. Most of us on a historic and global scale, we are wealthy And one of the deep temptations is to believe money can save us. We think we can buy ourselves out of trouble. Like the people in Zephaniah's day, we find security and safety not in God but in money. If you're hungry, well, I can buy food. If you get sick, you can buy doctors and medicine. Our security isn't in God but in money. Do you reckon that's true? a way to test this, a way to see where our trust really lies. How nervous have you felt in the last few weeks with banks collapsing around the world? Or when you hear of super funds going under? How worried are you each time the Reserve Bank meets and interest rates go up? If that gets you overly worried... Maybe it's because that's where your security is. Judah in Zephaniah's day, that's what they were like. Greedy idol worshippers who didn't care for the true and living God. Uh, In chapter 2, that's chapter 1, chapter 2, the camera moves away from Judah and it pans over the nations, the world. He goes through 
the nations at each point of the compass, north, south, east, west, and the point is being made, God is looking at the whole world. Not just his own people, Judah, but the whole world is going to face God's sweeping judgment. Once again, why? We'll jump down to verse 10. So Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 10. We see the world's sin, their sin, the nation's sin, is arrogance and pride. The nations mocked God's people when they faced God's judgment. Verse 10. Uh, This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The world looked on as Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed by Assyria. They're going to do the same about 50 years after the time of Zephaniah as the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon. The nations are going to sit back and laugh. Look, where's your God now? You claim to worship the true and living God, but look what's happening to you. But Zephaniah's warning to the world is the same fate awaits you. Part of the reason they mock is they think, well, we're stronger. They think they're safe and more powerful than God's judgment. Verse 15, this is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff. And shake their fists. This is serious and final. In the first two and a bit chapters of Zephaniah, the message is clear and solemn. And solemn. Judgment is coming and no one is willing to listen. God is coming in judgment. And no one is willing to hear the warning. So have a listen to chapter 3, verse 6. So God says, verse 6, I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Zephaniah's message is serious and sombre because no one is willing to listen to the warning. And this is what happened in history. Yes, I suppose things were better in the time of Josiah, but when he died... Jehoahaz became king, his son Jehoahaz. And he followed in the footsteps of his grandfathers, not his father. And the nation, the people of Judah were, were too willing to oblige. And God's judgment came in the exile. They were swept away by the Babylonians. Jerusalem destroyed, burnt to the ground. Now, as we've done, that's a very lightning tour of Zephaniah, lots of details we've skimmed over. But my guess is many of us are not all that surprised. We expect the Old Testament to be filled with judgment, God's anger at sin. What may surprise us 
is the grace and hope God speaks at the end of Zephaniah. Even though people, both his, his chosen people, Judah, as well as the people of the world, even though people don't listen to God's warning, even though we are happy in our complacency, our apathy toward God, we're happy worshipping pretend God, finding our security and safety in money and wealth. So even when we hear God's judgment and his warning, nothing changes. But despite this, despite God's, despite this, God's sweeping judgment isn't his last word. Now there's actually been hints of hope in the first few chapters. At the start of chapter 2, God calls his people to seek him, to seek him before it's too late. So have a look at chapter 2 verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, gather to yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind-blowing chaff before the, the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. The day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, the day of his anger, it's the day of his sweeping judgment. But God calls his people, urges them to seek him before that day, to return to him, to humble themselves before him, and then maybe, just maybe, they'll not face his judgment. The word perhaps in verse 3, it's not a word meant to remove assurance. As we see in chapter 3, God loves to forgive. The word perhaps, perhaps you'll be sheltered, It's a statement of the bigness and seriousness of sin and judgment. A reminder of how serious sin is. And a reminder to not presume on God's mercy, but realise everything depends on God and his mercy. But I think the start of chapter 2 is still amazing. There's nothing here about tipping the scales of justice God doesn't say, oi, you, my people, you better start doing everything good, even better than good. He doesn't say, make your good deeds outweigh your bad. No, he just says, come to me, seek me. Why? Why is merely seeking God enough? Why is seeking God enough to find shelter from his sweeping judgment? Well, chapter 3 explains. Chapter 3 is because God loves to save. He delights in saving people, bringing them into his family. So read with me, chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Uh, this is the one verse in Zephaniah that makes it makes its way to coffee cups and Instagram 
uh, posts, there's stuff in chapter 1 and 2 that you do not want to put on a coffee cup and see every morning about God's sweeping judgment. But this verse, people put this on coffee cups. The problem is, out of context, I think it's used to say something like, you are so amazing, you are so incredible, God is so besotted with you, you make him sing. The problem with this reading of it is it's so thin and us-centred. But in the context of Zephaniah, God's delight in saving sinners is even more incredible. He saves us not because we're worth it, but because he is. He delights in saving, in rescuing people and making us his very own. In that verse, do you hear the echo of Jesus' stories of the lost coin, lost sheep and lost sons? In these stories, the amazing conclusion is, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I was pretty happy when my lost wallet was found, but God rejoices, the heavens rejoice when a sinner, someone who's rejected him, sought after fake gods, found security in money and not in God, been complacent and apathetic towards God. God rejoices over people like us. What's amazing is God saves people. That because through faith We are in Christ, clothed in him. God sings over his people. Now that's really good news, but the problem still is, how do we get there? The problem is, by ourselves, our hearts are hard. We are complacent. We've already seen that in chapter 3, verse 7. God warned his people. He warned Jerusalem, those who'd received so much from him, he had warned them of their judge, of his of coming judgment. They didn't want to listen. In fact, verse seven: instead of taking the warning to heart, they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. And it's not just Jerusalem; it's not just Judah that's like that. All of humanity is like this. So, how can God save? How do complacent hearts become hearts that love God? How do deaf ears become ears open to God's word? Well, have a look at verse 9. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them should call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. Who is able to purify lips? Who does it? I, I, the Lord God. It's only through God's spirit changing our hearts, purifying our lips, only then do we have any hope of wanting to seek God and find refuge in him. Verse 7, our natural response to God's love and the warning of God's judgment, our natural response is fingers in our ears to keep running away from God and running away from his love. Our only hope is God's love, that in his love he will purify the lips of his peoples, that he will cause us to call on his name. This is how big God's grace and love is. 
Verse 9 is also precious, not only because we see God's initiative in in salvation, but verse 9 is where we get caught up in God's salvation. Verse 9 is not not just a promise to purify the people of Jerusalem, but the, did you see it there? But the peoples, plural. God calls people from all over the world and purifies the people's lips. Jew and Gentile, shoulder to shoulder in the one people, worshipping the one true living God. Which is why we rejoice in God's salvation. So have a look at verse 14, Zephaniah 3, 14. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. I take it by the time we get to verse 14, the peoples have been joined to Israel. Verse 14 is not just for ethnic Israel, but for all who have been saved, all the peoples with purified lips. Is this true for you? Do you rejoice? Are you glad to know God's salvation? One of the things Christians do is sing. We are a singing people because we've got lots to be thankful for. Now, of course, our emotions can be impacted by all sorts of things, but in normal circumstances... If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, the normal response is joy and singing. To know that the punishment we deserve, God's sweeping judgment, has been taken away. It's what makes Good Friday good. It's what makes Easter Sunday good. Because it's on the cross that God's judgment and his delight in saving meet. As Jesus becomes sin and takes on himself the sweeping judgment of God, the judgment sinners deserve. And Jesus does it. God the Son willingly goes to the cross to face his own wrath at sin. Jesus does this out of love because God, Father, Son and Spirit delight in saving sinners. And if this doesn't make you want to sing, you should ask the question, am I complacent? Have I sought God, looked to him for forgiveness and righteousness? And if you are trusting in Jesus, the incredible truth of Zephaniah is that even though you don't deserve it, God rejoices over you. And so we rejoice in God because his sweeping judgment has been turned away. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because you are the God who delights in saving sinners. All heaven rejoices when you find one who has been lost. As we hear of your ancient people's sin, we confess we have sinned against you. We deserve your sweeping judgment.
which is why we're so thankful for Jesus, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And we praise you for your Holy Spirit, through whom you purify our lips, so we want to sing your praises. Please be tuning our hearts to sing your praise. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.